0: There was an opportunity to come back to Baton Rouge, and so in 2006, my wife, who's my high school sweetheart, also from Baton Rouge, we moved back here to work at that time at the Cornerstone Chapel, a, a non-denominational church in town. Uh, and a year ago, some of you may know, we merged with the congregation at Southside Baptist, and so Christ's Covenant Church is the, the coming together of those two churches, the Cornerstone Chapel and Christ's Covenant Church. And so myself and Bradley O'Quinn... Who's the senior pastor, and Phil Yoho are, are shepherding the flock there and seeking to uh, build a church that's planted on the gospel and that is keeping at the center God's word and the reality of salvation in Christ alone. And so that's our desire. And when I think about Cross Point Baptist Church, uh, the words that were ringing in my ears when I thought about this congregation, although I've never been here, but I know of, of this church from afar. Especially in the last six years as Bradley and I and in that Cornerstone Chapel community were seeking to build our life together. I think of Crosspoint Baptists in the words of Paul. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring and so as we pray together as a local church we often pray for cross point baptist and are so encouraged by what we hear about your faith in Christ and your desire to not only hold to the gospel and your belief together but in your life together as a local church and to persevere through through thick and thin in those things and so i am so encouraged to be able to join with you and Bring the greetings from uh, the brothers and sisters at our church this morning that are worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ together around God's Word. And so, before we begin to look to the Lord, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, it is our desire this morning not to uh, merely think lofty thoughts or to have our minds or our attention drawn toward uh, good ideas. It's not our desire merely to find an encounter with knowledge or with certain principles. It's our desire to know you, the one true God, through your son, Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. And so we ask that your spirit now would do the work that only you can do to cause the eyes of our hearts to be brought up from whatever distractions that we would find ourselves plagued with this morning, whatever natural desires or thoughts we might have, it's only by your spirit that our attention can be riveted on the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ as you've revealed it in your word. And so help that to happen as we come together today. And I pray for some that are here this morning who have never made the wonderful discovery of knowing Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior that you would do your miraculous work as your spirit descends in this time to bring them to saving faith that they might know you and worship you in the way that they were created and intended to do for all of eternity. Be with us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. R.W. Glenn is a pastor in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and he wrote recently about an excruciatingly painful three weeks of waking up in the middle of the night with a herniated disc in his neck, and as he was writhing in unbearable pain one night, he says, I decided to put God on trial. Lord, what gives? Why are you doing this to me? What is the problem? I was so frustrated and uncomfortable And he says that in that moment, his mind was drawn from an incident that happened with his three-year-old son the summer before. And after dinner, one night, his son tripped on his sister's foot and he fell face first in one of the booths at the restaurant and blood started to gush from the center of his forehead left a gash about an inch and a half long. Of course, we rushed him to the hospital. By the time we arrived, the pressure had stopped the bleeding, but it was clear that he would need stitches. And R.W. Glenn says, I thought this would be no problem. The bleeding had stopped. The nurse had numbed the pain without recourse to a needle. And Ike, his son Isaac, he was happy as a clam. But then the nurse came to prep him for the stitches. She wrapped him in a bed sheet like a mummy, strapped him to a stretcher used for people with spinal cord injuries, and put him on a gurney. And with the nurse, my wife and I were told basically to lay on top of him while the doctors closed the wound. The kid, he says, went ballistic. Even though he had been properly anesthetized, he apparently felt the pressure of each of the six stitches going in and out of his forehead. And the entire time, as he was foaming at the mouth and gagging, He just kept repeating to us, make it stop. Make it stop. Our response was to comfort and reassure him that this was all for his good. That we were allowing this to happen to him because we love him. It'll all be over soon. You're going to be okay. The doctor is going to make you all better. And now there I was, as I suffered on my bed, he says, arguing with the Lord, and it was the memory of caring for my son that rushed to my mind, and suddenly I thought, wait a second, you are not smiting me, you are not a sadist, you love me, you are my loving heavenly father, far more loving than my wife and I combined. And then the resolution came. This cannot be happening because you don't love me. This can't be happening because you don't love me, but precisely because you do. And that thought, he says, changed everything. This can't be happening because you don't love me, but precisely because you do. And what I want us to see together from God's word In the Gospel of Luke this morning is that God graciously, God graciously brings us to the end of ourselves so that we will see him as he is and trust him to accomplish his eternal purposes in our lives. I'll say that again and that's the big idea of all that we're going to talk about this morning in all of these verses is that God graciously brings us to the end of ourselves so that we will look up and see him as he is and trust him to accomplish his eternal purposes in our lives. Have you ever felt that way? Lord, why are you doing this to me? Make it stop. Have you ever been at a place, maybe you're there this morning, where you didn't have a clue what he was up to? all you felt was, The wind and the waves, as it were, buffeting against the boat of your life. Coming apart at the seams and wondering, what is it that you're up to? Well, the encouragement this morning is, this is where the disciples find themselves in Luke chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 8. And we're going to start around verse 22. And we want to see this morning that the disciples by God's grace, are shown to us to be at the end of themselves. And Jesus uses this experience to show them who he is so that they will trust in him and what he's come to do. So let's go together in verse 22, into the boat with the disciples. Read with me those first four verses. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped, and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples in fear and amazement, they asked one another, "Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him this is god 's word to us this morning, and the trip started out simple enough didn 't it it 's jesus idea to get into the boat and they 're going to travel from the the Jewish side, uh, the, the western side of the Sea of Galilee, over to the eastern side, Jesus promptly gets into the boat, finds a place in the back of the boat, and he promptly falls asleep. And it's important to notice here that this is part of what we see, that Jesus was fully human. As one person put it, he, he was not Superman without the cape on. He, he really was a human being. And it's important for us to see that this morning, that as Jesus came to us, he got tired. And we see that here, and found a, a place in the back of the boat to sleep. But However, I, I don't think that was probably the only reason Jesus finds a place to sleep in the back of the boat. I think he is deliberately falling asleep in the back of Of that boat, because I think Jesus wanted this very situation to happen because it's in the midst of this storm that Jesus is going to teach them something crucial about who he is. And so look at verse 23. It says, Notice, they were in great danger. That was real. There was something amazing, something about this storm that was profoundly dangerous. Because and this would have been normal on the Sea of Galilee. So Some of you might have been there. The Sea of Galilee is about 600 feet below sea level. Mount Hermon, right, just to the north is about 9,000 feet above sea level. So it's not uncommon for storms to sweep down on the lake. But notice what's happening in this passage. These guys who are saying, we're in danger, we're going to drown, these men were on that lake every day. This is what they did for a living. And so there's something about this storm that causes them to, it's sort of the, the funny, the comedic element of this passage is here are the professional fishermen who are running to the carpenter slash rabbi and wanting to know what he's going to do about it. <laughs> but they're the fishermen. And Jesus is asleep as they frantically run to him for help. It's an uncommon storm, uh, something that they had not seen before. In fact, the only thing more uncommon than the storm itself is what Jesus does to it. Verse 24, they get Jesus up. He rebukes the wind and the waves. And just notice for a moment, and this is something we see over and over, as important as what Jesus does, notice what Jesus does not do. He does not stand back. And say a long list of prayers. He does not call upon a higher power in this situation. No, Jesus, the word that's used often in the Gospel of Luke, he rebukes himself by the word of his power. He himself rebukes the storm. That, that's amazing in itself. The, the storm is amazing. What Jesus does in the face of the storm This is a man who stands up and he speaks a word to wind and waves. Very uncommon approach in this situation. Jesus speaks to this hurricane, as it were, in the way that you would talk to a child. One of the ways you could translate what Jesus says is to the storm be quiet, sit down. That's kind of remarkable for someone to do that in the face of a storm. But even more remarkable than even that is what we see happen in verse 24, is that it does. It obeys him as a little child would obey a command. And so you see in that verse 24, when he commands it, it obeys. And there was literally, the word is, there was mega calm. In other words, the wind just didn't die down somehow. It became completely still. And it wasn't just the wind that died down. The sea became like glass. And these disciples who moments before were in the teeth of a raging squall, and every one of the gospel accounts shows this, and were fearing for their life, they are more afraid after Jesus does what he does to it. Because the storm has an amazing amount of power, but who is this person who talks to that storm and it sits down when he commands it? They, at the end of this passage, are more afraid. They were afraid and they marveled and said, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. And I love this in verse 25. Where is your... Faith, he asked his disciples, in fear and amazement they asked one another, who is this? I don't think what Jesus means there. And this is the important sort of first point that we're making, and this idea that God often brings us to the end of ourselves so that we will see him as he is. This is what Jesus is doing here. Verse 25 is intended to be the teachable moment for these disciples who are his closest followers and they do not yet comprehend who he is. And I think that's what he means in verse 25. Where is your faith? It's not as much the idea. And oftentimes you hear faith mentioned this way in sort of a positive thinking way. Why didn't you just stay positive? You know, why didn't you just know that it was all going to work out in the end. You really weren't in danger. That's not what he's saying. They really were. They really were in danger. And so Jesus isn't as much making a commentary about their attitude toward the storm as much as he is saying something about himself, that he himself is the object of their faith. And they, his closest followers, they have not yet picked it up. They don't know it. Jesus isn't as much commenting on their, their reaction to the storm as their lack of reaction or their lack of faith in him. I think it's more of him saying, why are you surprised at this? Do you not know who I am? Tim Keller puts it this way. It's a helpful image. Imagine he says, you're falling off a cliff and sticking out of the cliff is a branch strong enough to hold you, but you don't know how strong it is. You're going over the cliff. There's a branch that can hold you, but you don't know how strong that branch is. How much faith do you have to have in the branch for it to save you? How much faith do you have to have in the branch for it to save you? You only have to have enough faith to grab the branch That's how much you have to have. You have to have enough faith to grab the branch. That's because it's not the quality of your faith that saves you. It's not the quality of your faith that saves you. It's what? It's the object of your faith that saves you. You, you might not know you might not know that it can hold you. But you've just got to have enough faith to reach out and grab it, and it's the faith in the branch that's the object. It's the secure object that will hold you, that saves you and holds you up. It's the object of your faith. It doesn't matter how you feel about the branch. All that matters is the branch, and Jesus is that branch. Jesus is the branch, and that's the point of what's happening in the midst of the storm because what Jesus is showing his disciples that he is, he's acting in ways In the Gospel of Luke, that would only be answered if he himself was God. Jesus is acting, and what he is showing his disciples, what he's telling them by giving them this sign, that's why this account is here. That's why it's put here. That's what Jesus is doing. He's orchestrating these circumstances. He's asleep in the back of the boat so that they will enter this moment of fearing for their lives, they will lose their minds and run to him and he will stand and give them this sign. And as Jesus stands himself in the midst of the storm, not calling on anyone else, he is putting himself and showing himself to be in the place that no human being has ever been in. He himself is divine because it is only Yahweh in the scriptures who controls the wind and the waves. I could go to scores of passages. There are dozens of them in the Old Testament. I'll just read a few. Psalm 65, verse 7. You might jot that one down. It refers to God as the one who stilled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves. Psalm 89, verse 9, addresses God directly. You rule over the surging sea, O God, when its waves mount up. You what? You still them. Yahweh does that. God himself does that. Isaiah 51, awake, arm of the Lord. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep? Jesus is showing himself in the midst of this storm that he himself is divine. He is the unique, divine Son of God. And so non-Christian friend, maybe if you're a visitor this morning or you're a guest here today, I'm a guest too, so welcome. We're guest togethers. But maybe you wouldn't particularly consider yourself a follower of this Christ. Maybe you, you've been around religion, but you have never truly surrendered, turning from your sins and trusting in Christ such that you would identify yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ. As you lay your head down on the pillow at night. Your eternity is an uncertain future. Where your soul will spend forever is in doubt in your mind. You need to be strongly encouraged as this passage confronts you. Not to believe anything else you might hear about what Jesus was claiming to be in his life on earth. Christianity is not As you might see in popular articles, magazines, or History Channel shows today, it is not the invention of some later authors who decided to turn Jesus from Nazareth into Jesus, the Son of God. It is the earliest accounts and witnesses. You know, this this passage in particular, and one of the reasons I love it, is that it is one of the passages that gives Scholars who would tend to doubt the Bible's authority, it gives them the most trouble because it reads almost more than any other miracle that Jesus accomplished as an eyewitness account. You see that especially in Mark's gospel. So Jesus is getting in his boat and the evangelist records there are other boats that are leaving with him. And Jesus is asleep, but he's not just asleep, he's asleep in the back of the boat. And he's not just asleep in the back of the boat with other boats around him, he's asleep in the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. And even liberal scholars stumble over this account because it does not read the way that legends were written. Legends did not have that kind of particular detail. That detail adds nothing to the narrative, but it reads as if someone who was there and saw it took a snapshot in their mind and recorded it back. This is one of those accounts, one of the earliest eyewitness accounts as Luke is doing his investigation into who Jesus is, and Jesus is showing himself to be able to do what only God could do, and showing himself to be the object of the Christian faith. So if you're here this morning, and and you're not sure what all the Christian stuff is about, or if you've stumbled over particular points of Christianity, listen to the faithful testimony of the eyewitnesses to you that Jesus Christ himself is the only object of faith that can surely save. So as you come to him this morning, that's what it requires. It requires that you would bow your heart, bow your knee to him, confess your sins to him, Admit to him that you've fallen short of his glory, but recognize that Jesus was the one who would come and accomplish salvation for all those who would turn from their sins and trust in Christ. And so be encouraged today as you're confronted by this picture of Jesus as he shows himself to be the son of God. Be encouraged today to find him to be the object of your faith and trust in him. And second, this passage challenges us in a different way, another way this morning. It it encourages us in the way that it challenges us this morning that sometimes, listen to this, sometimes it is exactly what God is doing to take you through the midst of the storm in which you find yourself so that through that process you will come to the end of yourselves. And this is a hard thing sometimes to do. To come to the end of yourself, to admit your own ignorance, and to turn to him as he really is. To come to a more full understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Sometimes God's way for us is through the storm itself. D.A. Carson says it this way. You might remember that in Acts 27, the Apostle Paul goes through a similar storm. That storm is, is not calmed the way this one is. Paul endures that storm on his missionary journey, as D.A. Carson puts it, in quiet faith, trusting in God's purposes. And D.A. Carson says, sometimes God saves us from trouble. Sometimes he saves us in trouble. Sometimes he saves us from death, and sometimes he uses our death To glorify his name. So, the point of this passage is not always if you're in the boat with Jesus, the seas are always calm. That's not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is that as long as you're in the boat with Jesus, you have the resources to make it through whatever storms you will come into. Because, think of this. We have access now, Christian, on this side of the cross to something the disciples did not know and could not have known, and that was that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he was himself going to go into the midst of the true storm. He would bow his head into the storm of God's wrath, and he would not get down off of that cross. That storm would consume him. Until he died. And Christian, think of the promise of Romans 8 32. If God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. I was memorizing that verse not long ago, and one of the most important words I left out, and I I had to keep reminding myself. He who did not spare his son is what I kept saying. He who did not spare his son, that's not what it says. He who did not spare his own son, he who did not spare his very own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also not along with him graciously give us all things? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Jesus bowed his head into the ultimate storm and faced the ferocity of God's wrath. And Christian, if he would do that for you, what makes you think he would abandon you in the storm that you're going through? He did not abandon you then, and he will not abandon you, and he has not abandoned you in the midst of the wind and the waves that you find crashing against your life. It's the exact opposite for you, Christian. He is now using that very wind and waves to draw you as he did the disciples. Do you see the grace of Christ to take his disciples through the storm so that the scales might fall off of their eyes and they might see him as he is, as the object of their faith and salvation and trust in him? One of, the, one of my favorite songs that we sing at Christ Covenant Church, you might sing it here as well, How Firm a Foundation. It's the perspective of God singing this song to his people. How firm a foundation, God says. Ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. There's a verse at the end of that song where God sings to his people through the words in that song. That soul... That soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, this is Romans 8.32, I will not desert to its foes. That soul that all hell should endeavor to shake, I never, no, never, no, never will forsake. And that is God's promise to you today, Christian, as he calls you to himself In the midst of the wind and the waves, that those very He is Lord over that storm. He is Lord over that storm, and He wins, He he wields the wind and the waves, and they obey Him. And He's using those things to accomplish His purposes in your lives. Isn't that an amazing, an amazing promise? And then the rest of this passage this morning, and we'll read this together quickly and, and won't spend as much time, but I, I, I can never look at that passage of Jesus in the boat without looking at the passage that often follows it. In Mark's account, in Luke's account, Jesus brings the disciples to the end of themselves so that they might see him as he is and then trust him to accomplish his eternal purposes for their salvation because it's at It's eternity at stake. It's not just the natural world that Jesus is concerned with or that he's here to do battle with. And so I love how Luke takes us from the storm on the sea to the the storm that's waiting for them on the other side. And so read along with me as we watch now Jesus bring this ultimate power into the ultimate arena of spiritual battle. And that's what's going on in this passage. That's that's what's going on in this room this morning. For we battle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and principalities in the heavenly realms. So look at verse 26 with me. We're gonna read this, a lengthy passage, but there's a lot of action here. So hang in there with me. Verse 26, they sailed to the region of the Gerasenes which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss, A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into them, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting At Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them. Because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. Verse 38. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. I find it so interesting. It's through the entire Gospel of Luke. Nobody can figure out who Jesus is. The disciples are confused. The Pharisees are blind. Many of the townspeople are scared and bewildered. The only ones who get it constantly right are the demons that face Jesus. It happens almost the same way every time that when Jesus encounters the forces of darkness, they recognize him every time as they say here, as the son of the most high God. And they are aware, probably because they know of Jesus' goodness. They know how utterly perfect and good he is. And that judgment will come upon them, whose existence is to plague in spiritual ways. God's very creation, particularly in this passage, this man. And Jesus here directs his energy. It just it's worth mentioning because there's often confusion about what is the deal going on with the pigs here and what's happening. Jesus knows it is not yet the time when he will decisively. Bring evil to destruction. He will crush the head of the serpent. Now is not that time. But make no mistake that what is going on in verses 29 through 32 is Jesus is bringing all of his power, all of that power that we saw contained in this Son of God he is bringing it all onto the destruction of the forces of evil in this passage. So they are cast into the pigs and then destroyed in the sea. First John 3.18, we get a preview of it in this passage. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Friends, we might not experience that kind of physical torment that this man did, but there is no doubt that we are under the power of Satan until we are taken captive by Christ. Hebrews 2.14, Since the children, that's us, since the children share in flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. Mark Dever notes, How horrific must it be to cause even demons to beg not to be sent back to the abyss? It's no bad thing to consider the horror of the fate that we deserve as sinners separated from God. Because the more we have that in mind, the more we will be moved to testify of the good that God has done in our lives. The more we will see his grace and kindness and mercy towards us in Jesus Christ, that he has loved us so tenderly and so well. And so don't be disillusioned, don't be confused today about what an eternity separated from God looks like, even the demons in this passage shudder at the thought of going to the place where evil will one day, finally, and for good, be banished from the presence of God. Do not be disillusioned by things that you might hear about, well, hell's where I want to go. That's where all my friends are going to be. Or trite sayings about an eternal existence separated from the presence of the goodness of God. Friends, do not deal with that subject in a trite way. Recognize the horror that's here and then find the sweetness of Christ who is here to destroy the works of the devil that he might rescue those who would come to him from the power of death and the devil himself. And then the last thing we want to see in this passage this morning, and the reason I, I wanted to move past the, the sea to the shore is to find, as we recognize that God often brings us to the end of ourselves so that we will see him as he is and then trust him to accomplish his purposes in our lives. Look at this man. Look at this man as we, as we find him as the crowd finds him in verses 34 and 35 and come out and see him sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. What a reminder of the power of God to not only still the sea, but as his power is brought to defeat the evil and darkness in this world, look at the transformation that happens even in this kind of soil, even in this man who is is demon-possessed at the beginning of this narrative, cast away from his community and his family, don't you see that the way that Jesus uses this storm, this, this raging storm in this man's life, bound by a legion of demons, look at what happens at the end of this passage. And this has been in all of Luke's gospel. If you have studied it or read along, it's a centurion. It's a sinful woman. It is the characters of a widow who has lost her son, the ones who are broken, most most downcast, who find Christ to be their sweet and precious Savior. And sometimes our route is in the boat, going overseas to the place where God would call us through the storm. But sometimes, like in the case of this man, it is not overseas. It is to go back to his very home. Go back to your home and to do what? And to tell how much God has done for you. Don't you see it? It was that he was freed from the possession of these demons that he now has the opportunity to proclaim the power of Christ that has transformed him physically and no doubt spiritually as he has been saved by this good and gracious God and the change and transformation of, of the gospel has now been used and is used by God. It's the storm in his life that is now wielded by Christ to be another picture and testimony of God's grace. Isn't that wonderful that we serve a God who is that powerful and whose intentions are for using even what we would never have chosen for ourselves for ordaining these things to accomplish his glory and purposes in us And then, like this man, through us. You see the sweetness of that gospel. One of the great hymns of the faith was written in a fashion such as this. In 1873, you might have heard this story, but I asked about five people if they had heard this story, and none of them have heard it, so I I have to use it. Horatio Spafford lost his four daughters when an ocean liner sank in the Atlantic. He received a cable from his wife, Anna, which read, Saved Alone. Upon hearing this terrible news, Spafford boarded the ship, the next ship out of New York, to join his wife. During his voyage, the captain of the ship called him to the bridge to inform him of the ships passing near the place of the sinking of the steamship that had carried his family. He's passing over the grave that now held his four daughters Spafford returned to his room and penned these words. Anybody know? Yeah. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ is, has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And then finally, and we'll sing this together maybe as we close. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. What a ministry, what a ministry that song has had, especially in my own life, but I'm sure in yours as well, that came from the pen of a man who found himself in the midst of the storm buffeting against him in the wind and the waves and turned in that moment And as our example this morning, turn to the Christ alone who has the power and the authority to wield each storm that you will go through for his eternal purposes and for your good. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word and find there this Christ who is Lord of the storm and Lord of all. May we find ourselves this morning not turning to anything else but this Christ my friend, if you're here this morning and you have never put your faith and trust in him, that you might be born again, do that now. You can express that to him simply by praying to him, talking to him, and turning to him in faith. And I'll be down here, down front. We'll, we'll sing together in a moment, but I'd love to know that, or someone else from the church would love to know that it's your desire to trust and follow this Christ that we worship together today. Father, I pray for my friends here in this church that you would sustain it and support it in the midst of whatever trials you would be- bring into to their lives as individuals. And on this church, Lord, may they hold fast to you who has the power to wield those things for your glory and for our good in your lives. And it's all by your grace we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.